Josh, thank you very much for uh, taking the time to join me on Culture Corner this morning. It's uh, it's great to have you and great to ha have you involved. So thank you very much. You're welcome. Um, just a quick one. Obviously, I've met you a few times, so I know a bit about your background and experience and who you are. But for anybody who's listening and doesn't know, if yeah. you can just give a bit of an overview of what you do, who you are, team sizes, responsibilities, that kind of thing. Yeah, sure. So I'm Josh Nesbitt, CTO at Glean. Uh, we're an ed tech company based um, based in Leeds, just at Leeds Dock. Um, and we've been going for quite a few years now. Previously, we were called Sonnet, Sonocent. Um, and we primarily focus on building a, a product called Audio Note Taker originally. Now it's called Glean, which is an audio note taking tool for, for learners. So essentially allows people to kind of take notes um, and kind of comprehend that knowledge in, in their own time, try and really kind of help them build confidence in the learning process essentially. So um, yeah, the tooling is all around building confidence and just allowing people to learn in a way that's very personalized to them. Um, and the main tool that we have right now is an audio note taking tool called, called Glean. Fantastic, fantastic. And is that for people at all various age groups? Um, so mostly based at higher education at the moment um, and, and kind of uh, the FE market as well, but also just kind of looking at how we can make it a more universal tool for learning. Um, so looking at making it just kind of accessible to all really, but mostly focusing on the HE market at the moment. Fantastic. Yeah. Sounds like a great tool. Yeah. Yeah, I wish that was available when I was at uni, but yeah, it would have helped no end. Yeah, it's, it's, I've had so many conversations with, with people around that that sort of thing. You know, I wish I had the sort of tool that allowed me to write notes and revisit them in a, in a way that kind of makes sense to me. Um, you know, I think the way that the company was founded was from that sort of accessibility tools uh, angle in terms of just making people build confidence in learning. And I think it's a... You know, we're a lot more aware of that these days than yeah. we probably used to be. I think education is a lot more accommodating with, you know, people's needs and, uh, and yeah, tools like Glean just really go to kind of help uh, people's lives really improving the way they learn. So yeah, it's been, been really good. I've been, been with them for about six months so far, really enjoying the, the journey so far. Perfect. I think anything that can support learning is yeah. that it's important, isn't it? Anything yeah. to support learning to help people. Yeah. Because it's not, not everyone just fits in one box, do they? So, yeah. you know, a lot of people need that additional support. So it yeah. sounds fantastic product. So yeah, absolutely. Good stuff. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> one quick question I wanted to ask you before we dive into culture and building high-performing teams is just get an understanding of how you got into tech. Was yeah. it always your, was it all your journey? Why did you get into it and what, what was your route? Um, so yeah, it probably has always been my life really. Um, so from about 17, I was, I was at university, but also just before university, I was learning a lot about computers and technology and coding. Um, I was messing around a lot at home with computers and then went to university um, in, in Leeds to study a, a, a business computing degree, it was called. It was the most generic title for a, <laughs> for, 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 uh, for a course you could possibly think of. Um, so I came and did the business computing course. It was quite, um, quite a light touch on a lot of areas, to be honest, touching a lot of general areas, but there was one area that was, was more coding related. Um, but I'd kind of already done a lot of the pre-study for that, so I already knew a lot around the curriculum, ah. which was great. So uh, during those years at uni, I started to kind of do a lot of freelancing work and, and basically set my own business up. Um, and then along with that, just kind of grew and grew. So um, before joining Glean, which is my first real permanent role, to be honest, oh, um, wow. I've run a consultancy for about 14 years before doing lots of different projects and different um different sort of roles really so from hands-on projects building you know platforms and products to um, to more leadership positions um, building out teams um, delivering kind of specific initiatives um, but yeah obviously that exposure to lots of different companies is really 
um, really helped me kind of gain an understanding of what makes good culture yeah. uh, and also what makes <laughs> bad culture as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, you've experienced a lot, haven't you? Yeah, both, yeah. yeah. And how, so how did you find that, find that transition from, I suppose, having your own, mm. not autonomy, but growing your own business to then going into a, a business working for somebody else? Yeah, it was, it, I'd say it was weird, but it wasn't, it wasn't that weird. Um, so I, I'd kind of got my head into the headspace of, you know, I, I want to take a perm role. Because the, the reason I wanted to take a, a, a CTO role um, permanently is, first of all, to do that sort of role long term, you, you know, you can't be a contractor. Yeah. Um, IR35 and all the usual boring <laughs> stuff that goes yeah. with it. Um, but also, you know, when I was doing a lot of consultancy work, I was working with a, a company for a short period of time. And then you'd, you'd kind of set something up and you'd be proud of it, but then you'd move on <laughs> and you couldn't really yeah. see the fruits of, you know, of your labor. So yeah. for me, it was like, I wanted somewhere I could commit to something for a lot, a lot longer. Um, what a bigger challenge and I wanted a good company to, to support me in that, in that journey. And wouldn't have just taken any company, but then I got chatting to um, Dave Sankey, Dave Tucker from, from Glean. And uh, it became quite apparent that we shared a lot of the same cultural values. And that was really what, what pipped it for me as well as obviously the, the kind of tech for good angle, the, the product yeah. angle was really important to me too. I was gonna say the tech for good, and yeah. it's, it's, it's a, a, a purpose and a vision yeah. that you could really get behind as well, isn't it? That's, yeah. a, that's the thing, so. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, think, I mean, we've, you know, we've got quite big aspirations in terms of the company. They wanna get the product in the hands of like a million users that's gonna really influence and impact learning and it's all about kind of the the scale of impact really and that was quite a compelling mission to me um to, to come on board yeah i can see why i can yeah. see why well that leads quite nicely onto what we we're going to talk about we're going to talk about culture yeah so we're keen to get your take on first of all what what makes a great culture mm. um and then get a bit of an understanding about the culture at glean yeah so so I, I guess the the thing to mention before we get into that is that I've run conferences and, and communities yeah. for, for quite a long time. Um, so for about 11, 12 years now, I've run um, events in Leeds um, under the kind of name of Hey Presents. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then there's a conference, which is a single track um, developer and design conference, also aimed at kind of technology leaders. Um, it's been going for the past eight years too. Perfect. So the community building aspect for me is super important in this whole conversation. Um, and I think when you look at culture in, inside of organizations, you need to think about um, communities really and how you support those communities yeah. um, and see it less of just like an organizational structure that you need to make effective, um, which is obviously part of it. Yeah. Um, but ultimately it's about building communities, building trust and making sure people understand um, how they can contribute to to that community. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah. <laughs> Perfect. And how how have you started to, how did you start building that those communities? How did you, I say, how do you build that, build the trust in it both, I suppose, with your, with, with your conferences and, mm. and, and that type of thing, but also with, with Glean as a CTO and, and growing the culture there? Yeah, so they're kind of the same things, but slightly different angles, I guess, on them. So, so with the communities around conferences, um, you know, you need to make it an accessible uh, environment. You need to make sure that it's inclusive, and that's not just in terms of you know accessibility, disability needs, things like that. It's also just in terms of the language you use to describe what you're trying to achieve, yeah. um, and you essentially make people feel as welcome and as a part of it as possible. And that's not just about some of the usual things that people will say in terms of that you know you, you don't discriminate and your code of conduct is very 
um, very accepting and you know it, it's more than that it's about the environment you create on the day or you know yeah. at the event it's making sure that you know the the, the needs are catered for without people being asked for asking for that so even just the basics of like live captioning at conferences or yeah. you know all, all the sorts of things like you know, neurodiverse areas where people can take some time out and, and can kind of choose to process the information from the day however they want and you know all these sorts of things that you can provide without people asking for it is, is really important because um, you know modern society is very catered towards a certain kind of demographic of people I feel and yeah. you know if you look at a lot of events they don't really cater the kind of wider side of the spectrum so just trying to take into account all the different needs of all the different users that come to your conference is super important. Um, and then that translates into the workplace as well. So how you do that in, in the workplace, how you ensure that really everyone has their own specific needs and uh, and you need to just really be respectful of how you can support them. And in return, you'll get you know a high performing culture that will support the company. Um, so it, it's kind of building that trust. It's showing that you're trying to prioritize their well-being and you're trying to prioritize their effectiveness at work ultimately you want to allow them to do the best work of their lives and yeah. you know to do that it's everything from the office environment to how you support hybrid working how you support parents you know how you support yeah. remote working yeah. um there's there's a whole host of stuff to it but yeah I, th I think for me it's um illustrating that you're you're really trying to get ahead of those problems before they're raised and yeah. and trying to show that you have really progressive policies that um, that already take into account a lot of those needs. Yeah, definitely, definitely. I agree with that. It's, it's interesting because I listened to something the other day. Um, it was a YouTube video from, it was Autism Plus. They were right. doing this YouTube, YouTube video. Mm. And it was all about supporting um, neurodivergent in the, in the workforce, um, mm. how to make the interview process more accessible, how to make the working environment mm. better. Um, and there's not enough is it like you were saying that it's not enough mm -hmm. done for that and just just being aware of that um and things about you know making your interview process flexible accessible you know not yeah. not old school rigid one process mm -hmm. um i think it's very very important yeah i think i think there's there's a few aspects to that there's the the sort of line of questions that you ask in your interview um and just making sure those those questions kind of dig into some of the deeper like so for me, there's a few stages of the um, the interview process at Glean, um, but the most important one to me is the culture side of the interview. Yeah. So obviously in engineering roles and technology roles, there might be technical aspects of the interviews and, and parts of that. But for me, um, the culture aspect is, is the most important because you can start to dig into the values that those people hold. Um, and start to see if you know see if they have quite a well-rounded view of the world and you know we don't have you know we don't have questions that dig too much into specific areas of that but it's just to try and understand how they solve problems yeah and how they how how they feel when they're faced with certain situations you know like if you if you're to witness an injustice for example how would you respond to that and um you know what, what's what's your initial sort of response is it is it you know fight or flight do you get yeah. Do you go in quite hard with a response or do you take time to sit and consider it? And none of the answers to that are, are, are right or wrong answers, you know, they're just, it just gives you a good insight into that that person. And 
Um, the other side of it is the um, the interview kit that you arm people with before you go into the interview. So yeah. um, giving them a kit that gives a really clear uh, view of the candidate, helps you understand a lot about the previous screening steps. Um, tools like Greenhouse and everything are really good at this because you can see yeah. quite clearly. Um, but also giving the right training for interviews to the staff members that are, uh, that are doing the interviews. So. Um, you know, if you're if you're unclear about a question, how you'd probe for more information, or because you know, first impressions are important, but also they're not that accurate either. Yeah. Um, especially if you're dealing with someone who's heavily autistic, or yeah. um, you know, someone with ADHD, or you know, there's lots of different needs you need to cater for, and the responses might not be in a way that you expect them. But that doesn't mean they're wrong. And, and I think that's quite yeah. a historically, you know. Yeah quite an old school way of thinking about it you know I didn't get on with them and it didn't click it's, it's like well what are the reasons for that it might not be them you know yeah, yeah exactly and I think you hit the nail on the head there like, interviewing is a skill isn't it mm. you know interviewing is a skill that you need to get good at in order to to, to draw that information out of the individuals mm. um, and I think it was saying on, on this on this um, YouTube video I listened to the more information and the more clarity you can give to somebody before an interview, these are the steps that you're gonna be going for, this is how long it'll last, these yeah. are the people that you're meeting. It also puts a bit of structure there, it's mm. clear, and it, it relaxes people and, and they understand that. Mm. And also, are there, being flexible enough, are there parts of the interview process that maybe people can prepare for mm. prior to the interview? You know, yeah. you know, do you, I know this is a, in the recruit, well, the talent acquisition space, it's a bit of a, Bit of a touchy subject do you give people the questions before the interview you know or, i think so i yeah. think so well i mean why wouldn't you like this isn't this isn't a grilling you know this isn't a yeah. or at least it shouldn't be i know a lot of um companies still do do that process where you you make you create a very stressful environment for the interview and uh, i think that's a really not a very good thing as a human to do more than anything <laughs> you know I, I don't know why you'd want to put someone into a really stressful position when you're trying to really understand whether they're the right fit for your company. Yeah. Um, so yeah, if you can provide the questions up front, definitely do that. We also do that with the, the technical side of the interview process. Yeah. So if we're interviewing an engineer, we'll give an advance notice of what the technical task is, or there'll be some pre-work. Um, I absolutely don't want to see you live coding interview. Um, there might be an aspect where you know you know sit down and you go, well, how do you solve this problem? Should we walk through it? Should we pair program together? Yeah. Um, but you know, gone are the days of whiteboarding solutions and things. Yeah. I just think that's a really, um, you know, because it's rarely you get that in, in work, right? You know, <laughs> you don't say, go and start a room for an hour and tell me how you build this architecture. If you don't tell me how it works, you fail. Yeah. You know, <laughs> so I just think it's a really bad way to set set the relationship off to a start, really. Yeah, um, yeah, definitely. So, definitely. yeah. It's important, isn't it? And in talking about, you know, maybe not ask theoretical questions, get someone to, to show you rather mm. than rather than explain. And yeah. you're right as well is if you're wanting information mm. from a question and you've quite you've not quite got all everything you need, mm. don't just say, okay, right, that's you know, mark them down, probe a little bit further so that you can get that information, explain yeah. to people exactly what you're looking for. Exactly, yeah. Like if they if they're not answering the question correctly in your eyes, then maybe you should give them a bit more information or you know, uh, we had an interview yesterday where we were going through some of the cultural questions and um, the candidate hadn't quite understood the question properly, but that doesn't mean they failed the question. It's probably that I articulated it terribly. <laughs> or, 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 you know, it, it, so reframing it and trying and giving them an opportunity just to 
rethink about the way you're pitching that question is quite important. But just create an environment where they feel like it's a conversation, you know, like like this. It's, it shouldn't yeah. be a, it shouldn't be a grilling, even though it is quite hard with that sort of linear set of questions. Yeah. Um, but I try to not necessarily do it in that order, or or you know try and make it more conversational, but. You also need to be careful not to make it unfair from candidate to candidate. So, yeah, you know, you need to make true. sure it is cons it's a consistent process regardless because you don't want to give preferential treatment just because you got on well with someone more than another, another person. Or, yeah. you know, it's, it's quite it's quite challenging to make it fair and consistent, but also make it, you know, unique to that person, if you know what I mean? Cause, yeah. Because everyone does interact differently. Definitely, definitely. Old school ways it's of bringing somebody in almost like to trip them up. They're, yeah. they're gone, aren't they? You know, it's, why are you tripping them up? <laughs> like, <laughs> why, are you, why are you trying to make them fail? First of all, you're spending loads of hours trying to get these candidates to interview you. Yeah. Like, why would you just try and ruin it in the first five minutes? <laughs> yeah, it's crazy, isn't it? It's yeah. crazy. Get somebody, it's, it's allowing people to showcase their abilities, really, isn't exactly. it? Exactly. And if their abilities are right, then they'll go on and do a great job for you. If, yeah. they, if they don't quite fit, then yeah you move on to something else yeah not not everyone's an introvert or an extrovert you know and that's the thing i think i think a lot of historical interview techniques were very much catering towards the extrovert sort of population and yeah. expecting that everyone is really comfortable selling themselves and really comfortable just kind of you know bigging, bigging themselves up yeah. <laughs> and, and not everyone is and especially if you look at you know more niche technology roles as well you know you you have a very heavily introvert um, community, uh, and, yeah, and you need to think about how you can really make an environment where where they can interview at, at their best, and that might not be putting them on the spot or asking them questions they're not comfortable with. Definitely, definitely. Because you used to hear feedback about they, they, they struggle with eye contact; they weren't confident enough. Mm. And they're like, some people just you know do struggle with eye contact. Yeah. That doesn't mean that they're not confident. It doesn't mean that they're you know yeah. they're, they're not they're not good at what they do. It's just, you've got to take into consideration that kind of thing, isn't it? And Absolutely, yeah. I mean, you know, okay, maybe some roles are more more required, like have higher requirements than others. So if it's a customer facing role or it's, you know, it's a role where you have to present or public speak, yeah. there, are, there are obviously clear requirements for those roles where you need to have certain attributes or, or traits to, to kind yeah. of yourself. But that said, People can also work, you know, really effectively when they can really dictate their own working patterns. And you know, I was chatting to a good friend of mine who's uh, got a really good job with a, a animation um, company, and um, she basically works whenever works for her. She was trying to work nine to fives and realised that those mornings were just absolutely killing her. Yeah. She, she really wasn't working effectively. Really hated getting up in the morning. Um, really couldn't kind of get into the flow of things. So. Instead, she started getting up a little bit later and she started kind of walking the dog or going out and doing some kind of life admin, basically. Yeah. Um, and then started work at like two or three in the afternoon and then worked through to like nine or something or whatever. And, yeah. you know, she was she, she was always doing the work that was required. The best work she was doing was probably more towards the very late evenings, actually. And, yeah. it, you know, ultimately, you know, it's nice to have a crossover of team communications and things like that. But we do work in quite an asynchronous world these days. So, yeah, um, so yeah, just that's a good example of where, you know, it, it's hugely impacted her life being able to work very differently. Um, and equally, you're getting more out of that person by allowing them to do that. So, yeah, the, the nine to five, it's not dead. <laughs> um, but I, I do think there's less of a requirement to frame everything around that nine to five. And at Gleam, we're certainly looking at ways that we can support um, you know, our people as, as well as possible, looking at you know, flexible working options and looking at uh, remote working options and looking at 
you know, working outside the UK, for example. So, yeah, yeah. you know, there's lots of things that we're looking into to see, you know, how can we support people for the lifetime of, the, of their kind of um, employment at Glean? And that might be that they want to do nomad working or they might want to go and, you know, might want to go and work somewhere else for a while. And obviously it's quite a big undertaking as a business, you know, organizationally, there's a lot of things to consider, you know, setting up companies in different countries or, yeah, or yeah. using umbrella companies and, you know, th- there's not always a good answer, you know, it might, it might not be possible for you to do that, but I think just showing your employees that you're looking into how you can support them is is a really big sign that you give a shit. Yeah, uh, it's massive, it's huge. Yeah. But equally, it shines a great light on the culture at Glean yeah. and, and the management team, the senior leadership team mm. and the people that are there. You've got a culture where you're forward thinking enough to go, we are looking at these options. Yeah. These options are available if we can make them work. Like yeah. you said, there are hurdles, like you said, but if mm. we can make them work, we'll we'll look at it. And especially, are Glean just a UK-based company at the moment? So just UK-based at the moment, mm. but we, we deal mainly in the UK and US markets. Right. So um, just just UK at the moment. We might expand into into other other areas, but, but yeah, focusing mostly on the UK and US at the moment. Well, that's another huge tick in the box, isn't it? You, you're focused in that area, and mm. it's not easy then to go and set up businesses elsewhere, but you're prepared to do it for, for your staff. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I think, you know, there's no, it's always it depends, right? It depends yeah. on the circumstances. But I think as long as you're showing that you're looking into how you can change policy, um, not for individuals, but as a whole, you know, it has to be fair, and you should change policy that could be um, utilized by anyone in the company. And I think, that's something that Glean does really well, um, but it's really hard to toe the line on fair policy, isn't it? And yeah. you know, sometimes there'll be the there'll be the first case where you'll have to change policy to support that person, but ultimately, that's also paving the way for anyone else in the company to then take advantage of it. And yeah. you know, we're seeing that a lot. You know, from the early days of trying to make sure the flexible working policy was there for parents, but also. Um, for people who didn't have or want children, you know, we need to be able to make sure that they can take advantage of the same sort of policies. And yeah. it's just how you do that, you know, holistically across the business, making sure that people feel like, regardless of their personal circumstances, you, you've got you've got solutions that will benefit them. Definitely, definitely. And how leading on to that, how do you, with regards to collaboration for your for your project teams, and mm. I take it it's high, obviously hybrid working. Mm. Um, how do you find the, the, the collaboration? Do you? I imagine you've got a you've got a, a vision or a policy of we'll bring people in for specific pieces of work, or you look at the the, the the people need to be in the office and the different ways of collaborating. Yeah, I mean we don't we don't mandate being in the office in that way. Um, we have a really nice office which helps. Um, yeah, yeah, you do. So yeah, department in, in Leeds is this new new trendy hipster um, <laughs> downstairs part of it. But it, but it's a really nice office space, and we were on, we were the first people in that office, so we got to design the office um, more for how we wanted to work. So we've got this nice sort of duplex mezzanine kind of area, which is this big open plan office space. But downstairs is very collaborative. We've got big meeting rooms. Um, we've got a big um, event space as well where we host a lot of internal and external events. Um, so I think making the making the office a destination for people to to actually want to get together and yeah. um, do socials and everything is is obviously like a a well discussed topic. But but yeah, we don't really mandate being in the office. We we do ask people to come in. F- I think it's four times a year at the moment for sort of town halls. Uh, um, right. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. But that's that's the kind of maximum we we ask really. Uh, we, we we want people to use the office because we want people to hang out together and yeah. you know that personal you know personal sort of relationship balance in terms of 
getting on with people that you work with as well as doing the work together is really important. Um, but it's not all, it's not for everyone. So no. you know you can't mandate everyone everyone to be f- super friendly and you know <laughs> no. you, you must hang out after work and go for a beer. It's yeah. not it's not like that. It's, but but generally the culture is a way where people want to do that. You know we've got um, Slack channels where people say I'm, I'm going going out after work. Do you want to come join me? And people generally do 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 that. So it's quite brilliant. nice. Brilliant. It shines a positive light on your culture, doesn't it? That you're creating something there. There's plenty of companies that are mandating people back into work. The cynical me thinks that's probably because they're wanting to, you know, stream down the staff a little bit, maybe. But you know, it's maybe, yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah, pessimist elite. You, yeah. you know, you could say that's a strategy. <laughs> I guess strategy, yeah, um, it's a terrible one. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I guess that is probably what's you know, it, it depends on leadership, right? If leadership get it, and ultimately, you know, you can't avoid the fact that COVID did prove that people can work effectively regardless of where they're located. Um, and some people will work more effectively, like I was mentioning about my friend, yeah. probably at home into the evening, for example. So, Definitely. you know, you need to respect the fact that, you know, if, if the output's not dropping and you're still hitting all your, you know, your targets and whatever else, then I, I'm not really sure what the, the real argument is for, for trying to force people back mm. into the office. And, you know, we're very fortunate, as I was mentioning, that social aspect, you know, we've got a, we've got a house band um, called the Glean Bandits, which I absolutely <laughs> love, amazing name. <laughs> Um, you know, house band. You know, I, I DJ with some of the other um, people oh, within really? the office. Like we all, we all like doing similar things, and yeah. I think you know that that's just a nice thing to to have. But it's not mandated. You know, we don't force band practice, and you know, <laughs> it's that they generally just enjoy hanging out together. And you know, I, I'm not I'm not painting too much of a rosy picture. Of course, sometimes people are like you know, I'm absolutely done with work. I'm going to go home. Yeah, <laughs> I need yeah. some space. Um, yeah. But it's nice having the option, isn't it, I guess? Yeah, definitely. People may feel more comfortable coming in when they want rather mm. than you need to be in on these days. Yeah. And it, it, it generates that yeah. sense of belonging, doesn't it, I suppose? I think um, so. Definitely. Yeah. The Just going back, you mentioned sort of interviewing before around values and yes. and, and, and um, competencies, I imagine. Is that, that, that how you, you go about your interview process and are the values do you look for the similar values to the values of the business or or yours specifically yeah so so it depends on the depends on the role to how the interview stages go take for example um and then we're hiring an engineering manager at the moment we're hiring two actually um and the engineering manager interview process has a few different steps so the first is the cv screening where you'll you'll meet with the candidate um, and you'll go through their cv you'll talk through the kind of history and um, just try and understand a bit more about the history of, of their career and how they've got to where they've got to. And then the second stage might be the technical interview process where you talk through a technical task, which will be given to them ahead of time. Yeah. So if the engineer manager, it might be a presentation around how they deal with a really challenging situation in their role or, right, yeah. or something like that. And then there's the, um, the kind of third stage, which is the culture stage of the interview, which is where we'll dig into a bit more about um, their cultural values, how, how they'd solve problems, um, some of the some of the, their finest achievements in life, um, what gives them that feeling of achievement. Um, so it's not it's not necessarily like you know digging into are you a good person, yeah. you know would you you know would you steal someone's bag if you saw it on the floor? It's not it's not that sort of stuff at all. It's more just trying to understand really what what gives them that fulfillment in life, um, and also what their processes with dealing with challenging situations and you asked about whether it's the cultural values that align with me or the company yeah. um, I think it's it's neither but also kind of 
the whole rounded view of things. So, you know, if it was my values, that'd be very, um, that'd be very balanced, that'd be very biased, sorry. And, uh, you know, yeah, I, I don't want to be taking my my values in solely just to judge someone else's values on that. Mm. Um, but equally, we want to understand that we have a shared understanding of what is, you know, what is good culture um, and, and what is the kind of general way we want to treat people at Glean. So um, it's hard to try and kind of weed through those questions without bringing your own biases into it. And you need to be very, aware of that while you're going through the process but we have quite a good structured set of questions that kind of dig into um well the themes i mentioned earlier which is you know what what, what gives you a feel of achievement what you you've achieved something over the last six months what was it and what led to you feeling like that was an achievement and how do you celebrate that achievement and uh, and then you know as well as that you know what's the what's the biggest challenge you've had in the last six months and you know if if something didn't go go to plan for you, how did you deal with that? What what was your response to that? Um, yeah. What were the what were the steps that you took to um, rationalise the you know a frustrating situation or you know because I think what you're looking for is someone that has a kind of well reasoned approach to you know something's not gone my way. Yeah, I need to process this. I need to figure out. I need to start to pick that apart. Why didn't it go my way? Yeah. And and is it something I can affect? Is it something that's in my control? Um, if it is or isn't, what do I do next? And it's just more understanding about that, that sort of framework they use to make those decisions. And I think that gives you quite a well-rounded picture of the candidate and yeah. it makes you understand a bit more about what makes them, them tick. But yeah, you're not looking to, for anything in particular about, you know, oh, they, they behave this way, therefore that they're a yes or a no, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And they, drilling down in how they cope with something that went against them also gives you an understanding, I suppose, of their growth mindset their their desire to, to learn and develop and, and grow and which yeah. i suppose is what you're looking for within yeah. within the business as well yeah i think so we have a question around what their approach to learning is and, and what right. uh, you know how they how they're constantly assessing if they're if they're learning something new or if they're interested in something how do they approach that challenge um i think being a kind of learning focused company obviously it's quite a relevant question anyway um but I think because the, because the tools we build are around how people take different approaches to learning and how we can support that learning process, um, it's quite important that we translate that then into the employment of the candidate. So yeah. how can we continue to support your growth as a person, um, not just with skills that are relevant to Glean, but also how can we how can we help support you if you want to um, if you know you want to learn a new a new skill or if you want to. Yeah take on a master's or something like that. Yeah, yeah. How can we support that? You know, maybe it's outside of work hours, maybe it's something we can do to support that inside, I don't know, but you know, it's how can we support you as a whole, not just how can we get the most out of you for the company? Cause that's yeah. not, that rarely leads to a, a valuable exchange really. And it rarely leads to someone that's really satisfied with the outcome because it just feels like they're training really hard when they could actually just be like, I'm all right, thanks. I can I can do my job without that. Why would I take on that extra pressure? Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, definitely. You want people to buy into it, don't you, mm. as well? You, you, you pinched my next question, really, because I was going to ask about a learning development opportunities mm. at Glean and what, and what you do and the importance of it, really, because I think <clears throat> back in the day, I've worked for some smaller companies and you're coming into into startup mode and I suppose you've been there you just everybody's driving you're bringing the revenue in you're focusing on it and it's yeah. very very flatbed structure and you know the boss is saying don't worry Adrian at the end of the year we'll do a pay review and don't worry about that mm. and you know it's all sort of good lads great lads and we'll make a decision at the end of the year but now that 
you think about the different sort of generations that are in work, they're looking for different things, aren't they? And a lot of people are looking for that structure, you know, how do I move through the business? What learning opportunities are there? And I suppose it's not just learning by by studying for, I suppose, the AWS exam or whatever. Mm -hmm. You can learn by just being someone sat next to you or getting involved in a project with you. So do you you open up all different learning angles to people at Glee? Yeah, so we, we've got a few different approaches to this. I guess we have we have a, a pretty generous learning budget, which allows people to um, to look for you know if they want to go to a conference or something like that, um, and and you know if they want to try and do some, I guess some sort of like event based learning or you know <coughs> something where you go to a course and, and absorb some information. We support that as well as possible. We we allow people to go and scout out their own opportunities there, but we also try and provide. Um, steer with things that we're aware of or you know if you're in the product team we might be like there's a product conference over here do you fancy going to it or you know for an engineering conference or whatever else um, I'm biased because it's you know, room conferences so, um, so I think I think they're a great way to learn you know I think they're a great way to meet people as well um, yeah, but yeah I think along top of, uh, alongside that um, there's also just how we signpost progression within within roles at Glean so um, we have a career progression framework which has management and individual contributor tracks um, and it allows people to understand where they're placed within that framework and how they can progress yeah. um, but alongside that we can look at how we can use you know external training opportunities or um, opportunities for them to get certain traits from you know the next level up on that progression framework and um, obviously we can create PDPs and things like that that can really help um, ensure that we stay focused so in my one-to-ones with my team um, we have an ongoing document that we keep adding things to and we keep talking about to keep right. them fresh in our minds to make sure that um, we're focusing on that progression for those individuals um, just making sure that you know that training budget doesn't get unused and people don't get lost in you know the, the heavy workload yeah um, it's very easy to get busy and to deprioritize that yeah. sort of stuff and um, I'll never deprioritize that for the team it, ha- it has to be a core part of that is your work as well you know yeah building that progression is part of your job. Um, it's not something you should do if there's time. That's that's the wrong way to look at it. Yeah, make you're making time for that. Yeah. Uh, it's not an add-on, it's yeah. part of what you what you do. Yeah, I mean, you know, the famous one is Google's 20% time and all that sort of stuff, yeah, you know, yeah. but you, you just need to, you need to fence that time off. You need to protect it. Um, and, you know, there's a whole load of tools that can help with that. We use something called Reclaim AI. I don't know if you've heard of it, but no, no, it's a cal- calendar management tool that allows you to basically say, well, I need to do at least two hours training a week, or I need to do this or that. And it'll intelligently move your calendar around to suit. And you'll be like, this is a really high priority item to me. Um, this item trumps any other meetings that people throw in. Yeah, uh, And yeah. it'll move things around to try and make your calendar work. But just doing stuff like that, that really makes it clear to your, your kind of colleagues that, this is a non-negotiable for me. Um, there might be something completely on fire, but this is my time, and I need to use that time to progress. Yeah, yeah. Well, I was gonna, I was gonna ask you about how do you retain productivity mm. um, and um, prevent burnout mm. in, a, in a in a hybrid world, uh, in a hybrid world. Sorry, um, yeah. but it sounds like you're you're very good at sort of ring fencing personal time, allowing people to have flexibility when they start and when they, when they end. And there's a real focus on making people, making sure people can do their best work, mm. but also that they've got other downtime opportunities as well. Yeah, I mean, we have um, company focused time. So there's a few times in the week where an afternoon's blocked out or a morning's blocked out. It's trying to ensure people can get that headspace. Um, 
And but ultimately, you know, mandating doesn't necessarily work in that way either. You can't be like you must focus during this time of the week. Um, so I think it's more about empowering people to make sure they feel supported enough to push back when someone is trying to capitalise on that time for them in the week. Or you know, I, I love the fact that our team really own the own problems and they try and solve them. And you know, the problem when you've got really good people is they want to help everyone all the time <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. so you know we've, we've got an incredibly supportive workforce that want to help everyone out you know when when you see someone that's really stressed how can I help support them how can I help um, you know take some of that off their plate and, and ultimately they're trying to make sure that the whole team benefit right but yeah. equally that can lead to people wearing all the hats all the time um, so you know burnout's a real thing there and you need to be really careful to not have people um, taking on the roles and responsibilities of everyone else. So it's just making sure that we don't get into a situation where everyone's absolutely knackered, <laughs> trying to support everyone else. And, you know, it's about having the right amount of downtime. It's about, you know, there might be some really busy periods, but you need to acknowledge that's not sustainable. And, yeah. Yeah. and you need to acknowledge the behaviors where people are working late or starting early. And that's not something we want to encourage. So it's just making sure that people feel like they have the ability to push back and say, you know, what, we're doing the best we can here, but the output is not going to improve. In fact, we're just going to burn out really quickly. You might end up having some really long, you know, long-standing problems if you do that. You know, we've seen in, in other companies people, you know, off sick with mental health challenges, yeah, and yeah, you know, that's not a situation we're we're going to entertain. We're not going to allow that. So, yeah. it's just how you how you provide a framework for people to know that if they're feeling that pressure, that they can they can raise their hand and go, you know, this is this is not working. You know, we need to we need to change tact. This project is going off off the tracks or you know, actually, this is this is too ambitious for the timescales. Or yeah. what can we what can we you know cut from this to make it more reasonable? And yeah. there's all there's, there should always be a conversation with the team to be able to say, um, you know, this isn't working, or there's too much work, or actually we got this wrong, and creating that you know that environment of celebrating failure a little bit and saying, yeah. you know, we, this is a learning experience for us, and and we haven't quite got it right, or we've got it really right. Actually, we're going to do more of this. And yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it sounds like you've created a great culture because a lot of the things that you were saying there is like you, you, you're empowering people to have a voice and to push back to you. Yeah. Now, they, yeah. they won't do that yeah. if they don't feel comfortable, mm. you know, and if, if you know, they're sharing a bit of vulnerability there as well, aren't they? Yeah. You know, especially if a project's going off track, you know, mm. if they don't feel comfortable enough, they might try and, I don't know, sweep it under the carpet or do whatever mm. rather than flagging it. But you're creating an environment where people are actually coming to you and saying, hang on, Josh, this is this, this is happening, which is yeah. which is brilliant. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um I'm a big fan of five dysfunctions of the team, right? If you've read the book or if you've no, read the No, no. But there's there's this great um, there's just loads of different kind of nuggets of advice in there, but it's all around kind of trust as a foundational principle and just having yeah. that ability to be vulnerable with your team. I think this is just who I am, but I wear my heart on my sleeve anyway. So yeah. if I'm pissed off or if I'm <laughs> if I'm happy or sad, you know, people yeah. kind of know that and um, I'll, I'll kind of very openly talk about why that might be. It might be something in my personal life. It might be something at work. And, um, you know, I think having that vulnerability and showing that, you know, everyone's human and, you know, there's not, you know, sadly there is a hierarchy in companies and, you yeah. know, different levels do have more authority or less authority. and. Um, it's not really about that though, it's about just showing that ultimately we're all trying to work together to create, you know, streamlined delivery or in our case, just build a really nice product that people um, people feel like really improves their lives. And I think as long as you've got a shared mission and everyone's kind of aligned with that, yeah, you're in a good place. Definitely. 
Well, I was going to ask you earlier about how do you ensure sort of accountability for people mm. in your team, but some of the things that you've referenced there where people are just keen to get involved. Yeah. And, and, and probably sometimes too involved, you know, you said wearing too many hats. So it sounds mm. like you don't have a, yeah. an issue with ensuring people are accountable for the work that they're doing. Yeah, I think um, in terms of accountability, it's, you know, the, the role definitions are reasonably clear at Glean. So we do quite a good job of making sure, you know, if you're a product manager or if you're an engineer, what your role is within that team and what's expected of you at, that, at the level that you're at. Um, so that's an important part of it. I think I think the vulnerability is, is an important factor. So accountability happens when you have a team that feels safe and comfortable to own something, yeah. regardless of the outcome, right? Yeah. So. If you create an environment of trust and, and vulnerability, and you know people feel like they can raise questions early and often, um, people will be happy to take ownership of stuff, knowing they have the support when things go wrong, or or knowing it gets celebrated when things go right. And yeah. I think that's that's the thing: the culture of celebration and the culture of celebrating failure as well is really important. And when you when you see that happening, other people kind of are happy to own things because you're like, I'll take that. I'm not sure how it's going to go but I'll, I'll take it. Uh, I might ask for some help along the way, but I'm happy to own that. And yeah, yeah that, I think that's the that's the key to ownership and accountability. It's just to make make it, a, you know, we're not putting this on your head so I can bollock you if it goes wrong. <laughs> that's not the intention there. It's just the fact that as a team, we need shared ownership on things to make it, to make delivery work because you know, everyone has to own a piece of the pie to to contribute to to that, and yeah, yeah. I think being clear about who's own, who's owning what, who's accountable to what, is is super important. Do you? I notice you mentioned failure a couple of times there, which mm. is really interesting because you think about allowing for failure. Mm. You know, and it almost goes against it's really old school opinion, isn't it? Like, mm. you, know, you can't fail. You know, that's that, mm. that's terrible. But allowing for it, did you? Do you have to put yourself out there as a leadership team and and share some of your failures in order for for, for people to come on board on that journey? Absolutely, yeah, yeah. yeah mm. You have to you have to talk about your your failure. <laughs> uh, you have to talk about the things that you've experienced. You know, and it kind of goes back to the interview process that I talked about yeah. earlier. If you if you demonstrate to the team that you know you've you've failed and you've you've learned from that process and and how you dealt with it, what 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 were the steps that you did to evaluate that failure and how do you rectify the situation? Now, organizationally, there's a way we can reduce risk, right? So yeah. ideally, you don't want a big bang failure at the end. You want yeah. either small wins or small fails along the way. And that fail might be that we experiment with a feature and the data told us that that feature wasn't being used or it didn't quite work the way or user feedback said that actually it just it didn't make sense to them. And obviously, the, the smaller iterations you do on that sort of work, for example, you might you might do a month's worth of work, you'll get out there, you'll be like, okay, it's not quite working, but what can we what can we adjust? Right, and, yeah, yeah. and to me, it's never about failure or success as a, as a big bang moment. It's about those small increments and those small adjustments that you make along the way. And it makes it easier to celebrate failure when it's smaller and more palatable. Yeah. If you spent two years working on a project and it's failed, First of all, it's a hard sell to you know to to you know usually the CFO to be honest. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, but luckily, Colin's lovely at Glean, so we're right there. But um, but yeah, so you know it's a really hard story after that, that level of investment in time and money. But it's much easier to go. We spent you know we spent a month on this. It didn't quite work, but this is what we learned from it, and these are the mitigations for the future. And I think you know it's about that feedback loop with the team, making sure you can raise those problems early and often. Um, yeah. But again, that goes back to a culture of. Um, 
of vulnerability, of feeling confident and secure in the ability to raise those problems early. Definitely. And what you were mentioning now about the, f the small iterations and, and, and the f you know, the failure, so you mm. don't have a big bang moment. I suppose that flips it on its head. It makes it quite easy then for you to recognize success mm. and, you know, even celebrating success, even small bits of success is, yeah. is important, isn't it, for the, for the team? Yeah, yeah, I agree completely. So it also sounds like you've got, I was going to say psychological psychological safety is a key key thing, isn't it? Within mm. within a high performing teams and everything you said there, it sounds like you've created that environment. You know, you've got your vision, you've got your purpose. You, mm. You're sharing that vulnerability for people. Um, they have a sense of you know belonging. How how do you ensure? How do you how do you integrate people into in, into the business and ensure that they have that sort of sense of belonging? So you know so quickly and encourage them to, to have a voice and all the key things around that yeah it's, it's a it's a tricky one <laughs> um so I, I don't think i don't think the company creates culture i think is the first thing to to say I, I think i think we can signpost some of the things that we can do to support culture creation um but the company doesn't really define culture in that way i don't see i think the people the people so you know, like starting a house band, or like you know, yeah, yeah. that's the sort of thing that is amazing to see that someone feels comfortable enough to start a, a new initiative or a new hobby group. In that you know, that's amazing when you see that sort of stuff pop, uh, pop up. Um, but yeah, so your question was more around how do you create that, right? Or how yeah, how do you how do you create that sort of sense of belonging? You know, you're bringing new people into the team. So how do you because you. I suppose with the trust bit is the the vulnerability sharing mm. that vulnerability. Yeah. Do you have any sort of onboarding intros into the team? Did the Glean do anything specific just to mm. help people settle? So we used to do we used to do much more detailed meet the teams. Um, so when I when I joined, I met literally everyone in the company. <laughs> right. Um, in these kind of sessions, so meet the product marketing team, meet the meet the commercial team, meet the RevOps team. You know and um, it was really, it was really great because I got to learn, you know, especially coming into my role, which was like leadership, going to have a view and work with pretty much most people in the company at some point. So getting to know everyone was super valuable for me. But equally, if you're an engineer joining a squad, that might be less beneficial to you. It's good to know what the whole company does. Mm -hmm. But do you need to meet everyone one on one? Is that a good use of there in your time? I'm, I'm not sure. So we were just the things a little bit because obviously we're growing quite rapidly. Um, those sort of things become unsustainable after after a yeah. point. Um, but there's still an opportunity to meet everyone. We we utilise Slack very heavily, but the whole company kind of run, runs off Slack ops, you know. So uh, yeah, yeah. everything's triggered through channels, and we have a lot of workflows that help us get stuff done. So whether that's raising a support ticket with IT, um, or whether it's you know raising a a uh, customer review, uh, a customer testimonial, or something like that. Yeah. All everything flows through Slack. So the Slack community within the company is very vibrant, very active. Right. Um, there's channels popping up all over the place, um, which can be a pain in the ass as well because <laughs> you keep you lose track <laughs> of everything. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I think it comes from uh, allowing people to talk about their personal lives at work uh, if they want to. Of course, um, when people join the company, you know, we we kind of. Make a point of if they want to get up and talk, um, talk and introduce themselves. They kind of get up and ah, right. 
do a, a few facts about themselves if they want. Um, yeah. Can be quite terrifying as a newcomer. <laughs> I was terrified doing it as, as a newcomer as well. Um, but I think it's quite it's quite an important part. You understand a bit more about the person. You understand yeah. about what they do outside of work, and ultimately that will lead to a better relationship really in work. So definitely. Um, but yeah, I think I think the the culture stuff just kind of. It doesn't operate itself, but you know the people make sure that it's it's a supportive culture. Um, I think there's a, a really nice atmosphere in terms of if someone raises something that's important to them, um, the community is really supportive. So uh, there's a good example where people are starting kind of new um, learning habits in the new year. So um, you know, I think you get into January, you reflect on last year, you yeah. look at all of your uh, New Year's resolutions. Uh, and someone created a, a channel saying, like, I really want to be accountable for my goals here. Um, you know, I'm, I'm going to keep posting updates in this channel. And everyone jumped on, like, cheering them on. And before you know it, I think there's probably 20 people in there that all got goals that they're tracking for this year. Oh, wow. And they keep posting updates on those goals and getting kind of spurred on by their colleagues. And um, that's a really good example of how I think the culture has just really evolved into this really nice supportive network of people um, that really care about, like, people's personal lives. There's been some really um, some really interesting topics raised in there. Some which are very personal around, you know, maybe baby loss or wow. um, you know challenges with with family with disability and things like that. And um, the group's just really supportive. It's just a really nice. And, and as a result of that, the wider company learns more about that individual and what's going on in their lives. And and they can learn how they can support them more around those those areas. You know. Yeah, greater understanding, isn't it? Mm. And you can't achieve that that sort of openness without a great culture can you it's, no. it's impossible and it's not it's all about it's about knowing your colleagues and knowing you i suppose as a leader knowing your teams yeah personally it can't yeah. be this transactional you no, know absolutely not. can it or you, you you won't get the benefits from it no there's an amazing uh, amazing woman called sharon steve who does loads of amazing talks on empathy in the workplace oh, yeah. um and there's a few on the hey present site so they're all free to watch um okay. But she's done some amazing talks on on empathy and how you can ensure that people engage um, with that sort of empathetic mindset at work. And I think that's the thing, you know, is if people understand a bit more about what's going on in your personal life and things that might be affecting you, they can support you more. If, you know, they see you really stressed in a meeting or they see that something's going on, they have a bit more context to be able to support you. And I'm, yeah. I'm not saying everyone has to overshare. That's, that's not what I'm saying. Obviously, people um, decide how they want to, uh, you know, open their personal life up or, you know, it's a big thing letting people into that, isn't it? Yeah, so definitely. it's not that that's a requirement. It's just that it's a really nice thing to see when people are showing that vulnerability. Yeah, and that yeah, and you pick up that empathy and it, yeah, yeah. yeah it, I can see how that would work as a team. You know, right? Okay, I know Josh is mm. has got X going on, so you're mm. there to yeah, there to support you, or you know, you, you know, not to push on things or yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. I, I mean, I put I put a post on um, on LinkedIn recently around uh, my my experience with baby loss, for example, and oh. I talked to my team about it too, and you know, I think that openness is like okay, well, I, I realise Josh has got some stuff going on in his life here, and actually that might help me really understand a bit more about where his headspace is at work and yeah um, but also like really lovely conversations of people coming to go i've been through that too and that's been, that's yeah, been really hard yeah, and yeah, i think you know almost like a support network comes out from no, of nowhere really yeah and i've yeah. seen that quite a few times at gleam where someone said something they've gone that happened to me or i yeah, totally see where you're coming yeah, from yeah, or, yeah, yeah. and and that, that's just a really for me that's just a really lovely human kind of the human nature that's really enjoyable I, I love it yeah you see that you see a bond all of a sudden don't yeah. you? We pre and it, it sweeps along and it's yeah, yeah exactly you're, you're right it is it is lovely to see yeah and um, 
a leader obviously has a big impact on, as I said, the, the, the culture. Mm. Um, what do you think? What do you think makes a great leader? What, what's your leadership? What's your leadership style? So my leadership style is is relatively with the team, relatively passive. I'd say um, they may disagree, I guess. <laughs> um, <laughs> but but ultimately, it's you know I really dislike the sort of old school um, dictatorship way of running teams. It's it's the worst way to to get people to engage in a problem. Um, so I think, and then this is another thing that I've learned a lot working with Glean. It's um, understanding the way people problem solve is quite different to you maybe and ultimately this giving someone the space to solve a problem or to understand the problem and to try and strategize a solution um, is a really important part of building a team and you know if you're if you're someone's quite experienced and have been in the industry for quite a while you might have a lot of preconceived ideas about how you you know but but back to failure you know it's allowing the team to work through something and learn some of those things in their own way um, Telling people your story is one thing, but someone experiencing that pain or um, you know failure in a different way that is quite personal to them is uh, a really important part of the process, I think. So, I think kind of backing off a little bit and you know stating to your team, you know, this morning I had a chat with the team and we've got we've got a problem and we discussed the problem and I had a quite a strong opinion on what that solution was, but yeah. it's not necessarily valuable for me to necessarily share that really in that group and. There's a there's a really skilled set of people chatting through the problem in that in that meeting and just allowing it the sort of space and time for them to work on that resolution um, and obviously sometimes you nudge things in a direction and whatever else but I think that ownership you know the ownership of the problem is really important yeah um, you know it's not about me delegating the problem to them it's about us going we have a problem how do we want to solve this um, yeah definitely. Um, and there's sometimes where you need to be a bit more clear about your direction or maybe you've got an outcome that you you want want to happen from that situation and you should probably be clear about that from the, from the outset yeah um, it depends on the problem as well doesn't it but for yeah, me it's definitely. about about accountability and ownership and making sure the team feel like they can work through it you know we have some incredible you know head of products head of engineering head of product they're all like honestly amazing head of ux has, has such a good experience like wealth of experience i'd be stupid to wade in and say you should do this or that um so it's about utilizing their skill set it's about giving them the the support and also the authority to go and fix that yeah um and, and really for me it's about you know the CTO role is about that, that kind of longer term strategy really yeah, um, yeah. it shouldn't really be about the operational side of things um, we have a really amazing team who who know exactly what they're doing there so yeah I think also a great point where you say you, you should stood back because if you don't stand back and you answer the you answer mm. people aren't going to learn and develop and evolve are they it's just yeah. and they'll be like he doesn't get it why yeah. what you know he doesn't get it he's just telling us to do this thing and that's that's the worst thing. It's the worst feeling as a leader as well. Like feeling like someone thinks you don't get it is a really for me it's a really personal sort of <laughs> horrible feeling inside. It's like I do, but I can't, you know, maybe like I've got a different context to you and yeah. we're coming at it from different angles. And I think that that negotiation and that like the time that you take to get everyone aligned and understanding that problem in the same way is never a waste of time. And yeah. I think because once everyone understands the problem properly, you can be like, okay, well, someone will go, I'll take that, I'll I'll be accountable for that, I'll go away and solve that, or actually, that's not, I can't do that, that's not for me. And then yeah. you go, okay, well, what else can we do? Or, it's yeah. A, yeah, it's a brilliant way of doing it. 
you you one thing i wanted to ask and i know i've been bending your ear for a while now so i'll, I'll promise to wrap it up soon <laughs> was um you, you've talked in the past about emotional states yes and that kind of thing how how important is it to to understand that I guess it leads into what we were saying earlier around people being aware of the everyone's individual circumstances and um, so we did this um, we did this thing at Glean called strength deployment inventory I think it is SDI SDI training I hadn't heard of this particular framework before but I'm familiar with different um, kind of approaches to this I mentioned five dysfunctions of the team yeah. and um, which you should definitely put in show notes because it's, it's such a good book it's amazing but yeah so so the sdi stuff is is all around uh mapping how you how you are and how you behave at work so yeah. the way they map it it's very hard to simplify this because they've gone through a lot of detailed research into it but essentially right. it maps on this sort of triangle and like what your strengths and weaknesses are essentially but also what what your kind of primary characteristic is so if you're someone that is very performance orientated or very process orientated or very people orientated, your approach to solving problems will be quite different. So yeah. if you're super people heavy, you'll probably sacrifice the performance of something or the process around something to please people right. or to make sure that people are the first and foremost you know, thing that's focused on there. Equally, if you're heavily performance based, you'll probably really drive for performance over maybe um, the people aspect of things and it might be a detriment to the people aspect or yeah. uh, the process might struggle a little bit because you might go we have a process for this but to get better performance I'm going to ignore the process and I'm going to do <laughs> you know and, and there's always other circuits so there's, di there's different kind of angles to approaching these problems and it's not necessarily that one takes from the other it's not like because I'm heavily performance based it means that I'm going to crap on the people side that's, yeah, that's yeah. not what it's saying it's just saying these are the ta these are characteristics that you have and for you to be aware of those characteristics will make you uh, kind of better understand how you solve problems or how you how you yeah. tackle conversations. Um, but the interesting part about the way that this is mapped is there's a, there's two sort of states. There's a state which is when everything's going really well for you, generally how you behave. But then there's a there's the sort of conflict state as well. So if you're put into a situation where you feel you you're in conflict, yeah how does that state change? Are you still performance-based or do you move into this sort of people-heavy response where you go, okay, oh God, I was, I, was, I was pushing performance, but actually I see the impact of seven people, therefore we're gonna take a step back and rethink this. Or yeah. actually I'm really heavy performance-based, we need to actually draw more process out of this and we need to define a process to solve this problem. Yeah. Um, and it's interesting because using this tool, it basically maps where you are and where you gravitate towards when you're in conflict. Ah, right, um, okay. Anyway, it's, it's really interesting. I could talk about this for days, but <laughs> it's really interesting because it makes you understand a bit more about how you deal with certain situations. Uh, and ultimately, your awareness around around that is going to make you a better leader or a better engineer or, you know, whatever your role is in the team, it'll make you think a bit more about your contributions to that team and also how you problem solve, I guess. Um, but sadly, I think this is a course that's just been moved to a paid resource, which is a bit annoying. Ah, and, right. and I'm not getting paid to say this, <laughs> um, but there's, there's, I think there's some free resources around there for this sort of learning kind of space. Brilliant, um, and it's worth looking into because there's some yeah. there's some really interesting research that talks about um, a lot of the sort of the way the framework's been built. Um, but yeah, it's quite interesting when you've got your whole team mapped. Um, so we've done this as a leadership team, but we've also done this for the entire company. All oh, right. Um, okay. So there's like a color grading system that maps some of these states, um, but yeah. So when you're dealing with someone, like I was chatting to 
um, someone um, from the events team, and she's put her she's put a sign next to her desk with her her strengths um, outlined and her colours and when oh, she's in conflict, what really? she does. Yeah, yeah. So she's almost kind of gone, look, this is me. And if you get into conflict with me, this is how I'll behave. Um, but also <laughs> if you don't, this is, you know, it's really that's valuable, cool. you know. Yeah. Um, that's Anna Standoffy. She's not like that at all. She, she's super <laughs> lovely. But, you know, it's really, it's really valuable that people kind of wear that on their sleeve so you can know exactly how how they tick and, and how you can support them if they're in conflict or how you can you know how you can just generally work with them it, yeah. it's really valuable i'll pick up that information for it from you afterwards yeah. definitely and add that as well because i was going to ask about how about conflict and how you deal with conflict i know mm. people have different different ideas around that but mm. understanding like that with, with with that as a solution must help no end yeah i think i think that's the thing thinking figuring out what your triggers are mm figuring out what your sort of non-negotiables are in in conflicts and um you know how how, how you respond are you an immediate like jump into the problem yeah. or do you kind of take a step back for a minute and think a little bit about it before you go into it and um sometimes you'll do both <laughs> and yeah. depends on yeah. what the problem is right yeah. and yeah. um you know if, if you see something happening in the street that's quite a you know a physical thing happening that you feel like you need to help or get involved in might be different to you know something that's happening at work where you can take a step back and you know so yeah. not everything is equal obviously um but i do think it's important to assess how you deal with that conflict stage of, of what we just talked about and for me i i was and, and a lot of leadership teams gravitate towards the performance aspect of things um but i i was more sort of performance than what they call a hub yeah. in conflict so a hub is a hub is more accommodating to look into the people process and performance aspects of a problem um, um, so you can be a bit of a chameleon really and try and blend yourself to what the problem is and try and cater your response to that um, so that's generally what I try and do I try and look at those areas and go what sort of response is going to get the best outcome for this problem yeah um, so if it's a people issue and someone's um, feeling like there've been wrong, you know, wrongdoings happened, or you know, someone's really frustrated with the situation. Actively, I'll lean more towards this sort of empathy side of things, trying to understand a lot more about the problem, trying to understand about the circumstances that led to a problem. Um, but equally, if it's sort of like a, a an issue with a third party, well, I'm probably going to take more of a process or performance based approach to that because you know we might be paying them a lot of money, or there yeah. might be some, con you know, there might be some contracts or organisational issues that we need to walk through. Um, so I think just being that. For me, that chameleon aspect is the most valuable point. Yeah. Uh, not, not everyone naturally falls into that. And I guess I'm quite fortunate that that's my sort of view of the world when I'm in conflict. But um, but yeah, for me, it's sort of trying to weigh up what response would get the best outcome for a situation. Um, yeah. It's hard to talk about without examples, isn't it? But, yeah, no, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? It is. Mm. I suppose part of what you were saying there flips into the emotional intelligence yeah space yeah. yeah understand what your triggers are and and that kind of thing so yeah um final f final ish question um i was just going to ask about about feedback um yeah. it's something that quite a lot of people struggle with and mm. how at glean how do you go about giving it but also receiving it do you have regular sort of um feedback opportunities from from the staff whether it's an employee net promoter or whether it's drop boxes or whatever anonymous feedback what what do you do as a bit as a business yeah so we use emps um but we also use a tool called lattice um which is a really great tool if you if you've not used it before but it has a really um kind of strong feature set around feedback specifically 
Um, first thing to say is feedback is is best early and often. Like if you've right. got feedback for someone, um, give it if you, if you can give it within context of where the feedback fe occurred. So if you're in a meeting and you witness something and you're like, I could give them some feedback on that, give it to them almost immediately after if you can, because it, the context of where that feedback occurred is fresh in the mind of the person that needs right. it, okay. um, not needs the feedback, the feedback that you're giving to them anyway. Um, so, so yeah, so I think early and often is, is the important thing with feedback. The mechanism of feedback is important as well. Um, so one of the things that I did with my kind of um, team members when I, I first joined was, how do you like to receive feedback? Um, would you prefer it written? Would you prefer it over a conversation? Because um, uh, yeah, you know, the way people receive yeah. feedback is very different. Um, yeah. Some people aren't comfortable receiving feedback in a, in a conversation. Um, it might feel like an attack to them. It yeah. might be something they're not comfortable with. Yeah. Um, equally, they might not like it written down because that might feel quite impersonal. Mm -hmm. So um, everyone has different ways or different preferences for receiving feedback is an important part of this. Um, so Lattice does a really good job of this because it, it asks for regular feedback. Um, it, asks, it kind of randomizes and asks you for feedback on team members and oh, okay. um, creates a culture where um, you can you can choose for that feedback to be public if it's if it's feedback that's positive. So you might be like, someone did something really good. I want the whole company to see this, yeah. and I want the company to celebrate this as, as well as me. Um, but obviously, you're probably not going to do that if it's really constructive feedback because yeah, that's, that's not very good. No. <laughs> um, and that's the thing as well, like putting people on the spot and giving feedback in an environment, you know, in public might not be comfortable for them too. Yeah. Um, for me, I'm quite comfortable receiving feedback wherever, if it's in public or if it's in private, I don't mind. Ah, right, okay. um, but others might really not, not enjoy that yeah. experience. So, yeah. um, you know, I've worked with team members in the past that don't want to be celebrated at things like town halls, you know. Um, I don't like being put on the spot there. I don't enjoy that situation. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, th I think just recognizing um, how people want to receive feedback and also creating tooling um, that will allow for efficient communication around that feedback. Perfect. One thing I wanted to ask you, um, yeah. what was the most valuable leadership lesson that you've, that, that you've learned? Um, probably how not to do leadership. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so yeah, worked, working in a consultancy for so many years, you work with a lot of different companies yeah. um, and you work with, work with a lot of different leaders and different leadership styles. And, um, you know, I think we talked a bit about how, um, how giving teams space to, to kind of understand how they want to solve problems, um, not dictate solutions, um, and, and also just kind of putting that level of pressure on that is not going to get the, the sort of output that you're hoping from from a team. So yeah. work, worked in a couple of, you know, in hindsight, really toxic places um, yeah. with really toxic working relationships where, um, you know, people are throwing people on, under buses all over the place. Yeah. And, you know, for me, the, the best leadership lesson I learned from that is that because I, I am someone that wears my heart on my sleeve and um, is quite vulnerable by default, you know, the default sort of, I'll trust you until you, you burn me yeah, sort of thing. Yeah, I'm like that. Um, which, is, which is great. And I, I absolutely won't change that approach for a few, you know, a few people that have, have definitely abused that. Yeah. Um, but I think just understanding early, you know, you know when, when those sort of people are, are in the room with you, you know, and understanding maybe how you need to change tact a little bit with those sort of characteristics. Um, because, you know, it, not, not everywhere is, you know, is beautifully friendly and not everyone is going to have your best interests at heart. I think the best lesson I learned, sadly, during quite a bad phase of 
um, clients is that you know you need to figure out when those people don't deserve your time and deserve your energy yeah. um, and figuring out you know you're in control of actually cutting that relationship off um, yeah. And, yeah. and how you don't entertain yeah. that sort of behavior is probably the best uh, best one I've, I've learned um, but sadly the hard way yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's how most people learn I think isn't yeah. it really well you know failure isn't it you know failure failure teaches you things sometimes it'll absolutely suck at the time <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but I think it's important to kind of come away kind of try to look for what you can learn from that situation yeah. um, because if you just take it as just something really horrible has happened to me and that's going to stay with me for the rest of my life um, you've got to learn from it you've got to take something away yeah, you learn you learn from it, become stronger, and then you and yeah. then you move on, don't you? Yeah. So final thing, yeah. um, how do you keep learning as an individual? How do you keep learning and improving? Do you is there anything that you do? Do you regularly read or listen to podcasts on certain things? How do you keep improving yourself? I, I'm obsessed with just taking on new hobbies. <laughs> <laughs> My wife will <laughs> attest to that. It's, it's a bit of a trait of mine. Um, yeah, so I, I DJ quite a lot, and I love DJing because it's a really technical skill set. Yeah, and um, different music styles are always keeping you uh, on on your on your toes. But um, yeah, I think I think for me, just taking putting yourself into situations of big big discomfort. So yeah. um, recently, just before Christmas, I, I love cooking. I've always loved cooking, and I went and did a, a chefing stage at um, a, a Michelin star restaurant. Oh, so wow. went into the kitchen and just like I don't know anything. Teach me how how this all works, um, and and I felt I felt so uncomfortable, <laughs> and also being a slightly larger chap as well. Like <laughs> these kitchens aren't big places, so I always felt like I was in someone's way or doing something yeah, wrong. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think just always creating environments of like uh, I need to be out of my comfort zone. I need to feel like I'm learning something new and. Um, yeah, I think always always looking for those opportunities. So yeah, the, I'm going to continue to go to as many professional kitchens as I can and, and keep keep being uncomfortable. Fair <laughs> yeah, How did it go? Was it really well? I think yeah. so. Yeah. I mean, they said they'd have me back, so I think oh, that's right. a that's a good enough sign for me. <laughs> yeah. I didn't get sacked on the first day. Um, yeah, they were pushing you out the door. <laughs> yeah, but you know, it's it's a, it was an amazing experience. Um, Callum, the head chef at there, was just so welcoming and so supportive. Um, and he, the way he ran that team, I found very interesting to compare to technology teams. You know, yeah. he, he created psychological safety. You know, kitchens aren't the way they used to be. It's not just all shouting, yeah, you know, yeah, shouting yeah. and putting people down. It's it was an immensely supportive culture, and yeah, I'm just really amazed at um, the kind of level of skill and effort that goes into getting that that dish to your to your table. Brilliant. It's amazing. Yeah, yeah dude, you're braver than me. I don't think I could have done. <laughs> a, I'm rubbish at cooking, and B, I'd be scared stiff in an environment. I was like absolutely that, so. shitting my pants. Yeah. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> it was definitely hard, but um, but it was a really, it was really, really good experience. I'd do it again in a heartbeat. Brilliant, yeah. brilliant. Josh, thank you so much. Thanks really enjoyed me. speaking to you today. It was Likewise. brilliant. Some of the information was was spot on. Thank yeah. you very much for thank sharing. You. Thank Appreciate you. Thanks it. for having me. Appreciate it. Yeah. Thank no you. No problem. Cheers.